Nebuchadnezzar and Nehemiah is probably not one of the periods of time that is most commonly studied. So we need to think a little bit about the historical background. It's going to be applicable for everything that we're doing uh, in these four studies. Basically, you know that the Israelites inherited the land of Canaan. They were ruled by judges and then kings. Then the kingdom split. And both sides were unfaithful to God, the northern kingdom especially, because of the golden calves of Dan and Bethel. And they were led into captivity in about 722 by the nation of Assyria. The southern kingdom of Judah continued on for a long time. They had had some better kings and some better moments than the northern kingdom had. But they eventually grew quite corrupt, especially with kings like Manasseh and Ammon and others, and so God led them into captivity also. The way I would look at it, they were led into captivity in Babylon in three ways. The first wave in 605 included men like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The second wave in 597 included the king, Jehoiachin, and a prophet like Ezekiel. And then the third wave was the total destruction, devastation of practically everybody being led into captivity in about 586. Now we are in the period of time. Josh, do you mean? Uh, Josh. Yeah, well, uh, they have ways of showing up. Very good, thank you. Um, In the the return from captivity, uh, in the period we're going to look at, they were in Babylon for a while. We'll talk about how long after that. And uh, Babylon was conquered by Persia. And the Persian uh, monarchs, generally speaking, did not have the same philosophy about... Uh, conquered nations that Babylon did. Babylon liked to just exile the people into Babylon. Persia liked to send the people back home, have them work hard and pay taxes. That was the Persian policy. And of course we see the hand of God behind all of that because that worked out very well for the purposes of the Israelite peoples getting to go back home. That's kind of the background, sketchy introduction. Do you have a thought or comment question about that? And I'm in circles, so uh, when you want to talk, just talk. I don't need you. Don't have to raise your hand necessarily. Yes. So this is uh, in the reign of King Cyrus when he issued the decree to go back or after. It did. We will begin with the decree of Cyrus. Yes. At about 5:38, give or take, a year or two. I wasn't living back then, so I can't say that for sure. Close, but uh, but that's what the historians generally tell us. Anything else? Okay, let's let's go ahead and start in Ezra, and this will give us some more introduction. Um, and most of you know my teaching style. When I call out a passage, somebody read it. When I ask a question, somebody answer it. I know there's a lot of people in here, uh, but that's okay. Make comments and ask questions. Make them relatively brief and spread them around. Uh, that'll be great. So Ezra one, one to four. The Lord Nehemiah. No, Ezra. 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 In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, as the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given thee all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you, of all his peoples, may his God be with him, 
and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Judah, or the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, may be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Okay, so we're in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the nation that conquered Babylon, and um, what does Cyrus decree? Basically, the Jews can go home. They can go home and build the temple. Now, this proclamation for the Jews to go home fulfilled whose prophecy? Jeremiah. Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 25 and Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah predicted that the time period of the Babylonian Empire's reign and the time period of the captivity of Israel would be how long? 70 years. 70 years. Now, if you take it from the beginning of the captivity, the first wave, at about 605 or 606, we're now down to about 539, 538. You're coming close to 70 years and fulfilling that prophecy, maybe even beating it by a couple of years. God may have been even better than his word. Cyrus issued the proclamation to go home. Now, from Cyrus's position, there are some advantages to sending them back to working the lands where they were. And also, when Cyrus tells them to rebuild the temple, what would Cyrus be hoping for? Bonus points. Who would like him? Who would like him, but not just that? He could receive benefits from God. Absolutely. Now, was Cyrus a monotheist? Uh, would he have believed only in God? No, he believed in all the gods. So, you want, if you can get more brownie points with more gods, you know, you do better. So he tries to favor all of them. He sends them back home and, and even gives them various helps to build the temple of their God. A lot of times they would ask in this passage later where he'll ask for prayers to be made for him and his children. You know, get all the gods on your side. So that's kind of his idea. Um, but we understand that this is not just a political decision. Who was really behind this decision? Verse 1. The Lord. Now, look back at Isaiah 44 for a moment, because this really was a part of God's plan that he had spoken by Isaiah uh, 150 plus years before. I Isaiah 44, 28, to Isaiah 45, 1. Isaiah 44, 28, to Isaiah 45, 1. So let me read that. It is I who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he will perform all my desires. He desires of he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built, and of the temple your foundation will be laid. This is the Lord of Cyrus is anointed, whom I have taken by my by the right hand, to subdue nations before him, and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that the gate, so that gates will not be shut. Now tell you something. When God tells us through Isaiah 150 plus years before what Cyrus was going to do, what does that show you? It's part of his plan. 
this is real. Don't think of this as just, well, boy, God's a great prognosticator. You know, he really does a great job of figuring out what might happen in the future. It's really that God is the one in charge of what's happening in the future. He stirs up Cyrus to issue this decree. He's really the one that raised up Cyrus to conquer Babylon. You see how God's hand and his plan is behind all of these things, and he's just working out his will. He's accomplishing his project for them to go home. And so that's exactly what happens. Now, um, along with the people who go back home, what else goes with them, verse 4? And verse 6. Animals and money. They get stuff from the people in Babylon, their own people, maybe some of the Babylonian people, to take with them to help in the temple building project. You know what this reminds me of? What does it remind you of? Leaving captivity with stuff. Egypt. Isn't that exactly what happened in Egypt? They, 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 the, the Egyptians were glad to uh, see them go after uh, 10 plagues, and they loaded them up with stuff to encourage them uh, on their journey. So we've really got a second exodus here. Uh, do you have comments and questions to this point? Okay. In chapter 1, verse 5, you've got these people, mostly Judah, Benjamin, and Levi, whose spirit God had stirred to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem. God's been doing a lot of stirring up here, hasn't he? Who, who else did he stir up? Cyrus. Now he stirs up the people to go back home, and the rest of chapter 1 tells about that, and tells a bunch of the loot they took back with them, a lot of stuff, and they're going back, with what special uh, responsibility? What did he tell them to do? Rebuild the temple. So, how many questions on chapter 1? Chapter 2. Anybody want to read that chapter? <laughs> what is that chapter? It's, it, it's, it's the numbers of people who do what? Go back, yeah. These are people who go back. God honors the returnees by this list. Now, it's obviously not every single individual. It's more or less family groupings. And in some cases, perhaps geographical groupings of people who are going back. Uh, also, there's special listing of like priests and Levites and temple servants and all of those guys who go back. And in total, verse 64, there's about 42,000 uh, with about 7,000 servants. So there's almost 50,000 people who return back, and here's the list of them. You can study that list in detail if you want to. But I want us to look at chapter 2, verses 61 to 63. Sons of the priests and the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Kaz, the sons of Barzillai, who took wife and daughters of Barzillai and Gilgadite, and called by their name, he sought their listing among those who were registered by genealogy but were not found. Therefore they were excluded from the priesthood. 
And And the governor said to them that they should not eat the most holy thing until Jesus himself is in Europe. Okay. Now you've got some of the priests. And what could they do? Good what? Why could they not eat of the most holy things? Well, yeah, they were considered unclean, but what was the reason they were considered unclean? They couldn't prove that they were priests. Yes! Well, how could they prove they were priests? Hadn't they gone to preschool and had their diploma? Their genealogy. Why did you need a genealogy to be a priest? Yeah, the priesthood was a hereditary thing. You had to be of the tribe of Levi. You actually had to be of which family of the tribe of Levi? Aaron. Aaron. Evidently, some of the genealogical records were lost. Captivity and all that. They couldn't prove their descent. And so what was the decision about these guys? No priesthood for them? Unless what? Or until what? Until there was a priest that had the Yeah, you remember about the Urim and the Thummim? What? Or some of them, some people say the Urim and Thummim or something like that. I don't know. You know anything about that stuff? It was sort of like a way to cast lots, if I remember that. Sort of like a way that the priest would... They they use them as a mechanic to they like ask God a question. That's the way God would communicate with them. Exactly. Now I don't know everything about that, and I don't think anybody knows everything about that. But the Urim and the Thummim, or the Urim and Thummim, were a part of the priestly equipment that was uh, specified in Exodus. That apparently this was some sort of an apparatus that allowed them to ask God questions directly that God would answer. Now, how that worked, there's lots of speculation. I don't really know. But unless there was a priest that had the Urim and the Thummim to be able to ask God if these guys were really priests, until that point came, they were out. As far as priesthood is concerned, they were excluded and they could not eat from the holy things. What do you think about that decision to exclude these guys from priesthood unless we could confirm their genealogy? So that's true. Why would you say that? Especially after what happened uh, back with King David and the, I mean, and the cattle and the, um, or not the cattle, the uh, cart and the falling off. I mean, so God's apparently very serious about who touches uh, certain holy things. Yeah, it's holy stuff. It's really important that only the right people uh, be associated with that. Um, it's very important to respect God's order. And what does God think about maybe maybe some guys that don't have the right credentials being priests in the Old Testament? Was he okay with that? Remember any examples where he wasn't so okay with that? Well, yeah, maybe the Bible you're saying that offered the strange fire. That's a good example. It's all offered a sacrifice. Yes, he may have had priests offered for him, I'm not sure. Other types of the ark. I mean, Isaiah. Isaiah! What did he try to do? 
By doing what? What priestly function did he try to exercise? Living in the temple? Yeah, burning the incense. That was a priestly job. He wasn't a priest. He wasn't even from the tribe of Levi. What tribe would Isaiah been from? He was a king. Judah. Judah, yeah. So he couldn't do that. There was another time. Well, there was, a, there was kind of a group of people that tried to kind of commandeer the priesthood for themselves. Remember that? They didn't kind of like the priesthood being so exclusively in the hands that it was in. No, close though. Korah. Remember Korah and David or Byram and those guys? Can't remember that from all my notes. Yes, you can. And uh, would anybody remember what book Korah and them guys were in? Number. And uh, God. Well, well, in that case, remember what he did with Korah? swallowed him up. Uh, I think that indicates the Lord was not very happy with uh, people who didn't have the right credentials to be great. Do you suppose there's any lessons for us in that? Pay attention to what God has to say. That's a good one. Definitely. What else? Um, if we don't know for sure whether God would want something, but we have a pretty good idea that like we don't necessarily meet the qualifications, then it's better to just not do it. Yeah, you sure don't want to uh, be presumptuous and just, well, we'll try it and see if God would be happy with it. That's a good point. Some some things that we may not be quite so sure, like just an example, there's some people dispute uh, with the qualifications for elders. It says faithful children, whether all of them or just most of them, or something like that. Something like that, if you're not sure, to take in mind that it's God that you're dealing with. You know, thinking about spiritual leadership, God has some pretty high demands. It's pretty important that we meet the qualifications and we submit to His guidance about those things. So yeah, I think there's some good lessons in that. So they're very careful right here. It's a good period of time. Uh, they first come back. They're right down the line. We want to make sure we do everything right. I suspect if you'd gone into captivity for 70 years as a result of not listening to the Lord, that ought to motivate you to be a little bit more concerned about that. All right, comments and questions on chapter 2. Um, why would we have the first half of this chapter of listening people if God put everything in the Bible for a reason? Good question. So what would be the reason for listing all these people? fulfilling promise. You see who's coming back. I wonder if it also isn't to some extent uh, a way to recognize and give proper appreciation to those who came back. They've been in captivity for a long time. Would it necessarily have been easy to come back? I don't know how this is, but um, you guys are, say, roughly 15 to 18, and you're there. So, um, 70 years ago, let's see, um, that would have been in about the year uh, 1938. 
did any of you guys have ancestors that in 1938 were living in a country that was not the U.S.? You know? Any of you know of ancestors you had that in 1938 were not living in the U.S.? Anybody? You did? Germany? Germany? Anybody? Germany? Anybody else? Yeah. Holland. Okay? You guys, how would you feel if uh, you had the chance to go back to Germany or to Holland tomorrow? You, you jump at the chance? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm saying you move back to You become a German now. You become a Dutch person now. <laughs> what do you think? Ready to go? No? Do you consider yourself uh, sort of German? American, but I'm German blood. Would you would you consider yourself more American or more German? More American. What about you? More American? What about you? Yeah. You see how hard it might be to go back. Now granted, some of them have only been there 50 years. But even at that, you know, I had a boy I grew up with in, in, in school the whole time who in about about 50 years ago his parents came from, from Germany. I mean he was totally American. He lived almost his whole life in America. He's my parents' doctor now uh, in America. So I think maybe it gives recognition to those who had the courage and the conviction to want to come back to God. Why? Right, anything else on the first two chapters? All right. Chapter 3, we begin some of the restoration work. Now, in 1 through 7, they uh, work on the altar of burnt offerings, and they celebrate, verse 4, the Feast of Booze, which was one of their great feasts. And notice in verse 4 and verse 5 that they uh, have the, the burnt offerings according to the ordinance. And they, have the, they set up the continual burnt offerings, the new moons, the fixed festivals. And in all of that, they are very much seeking to follow exactly the prescribed procedure in the law. They're following the scriptures to the letter. So they come back, they've been careful about who are the priests, and they reestablish the worship on the altar that God has suggested. Comments or questions through 3 seconds. Alright, yes, Joe. So you can really tell they've learned their lesson. Yes. Unfortunately, they don't learn it for real long. But for a short while, they do seem to have learned their lesson. Good point, Joe. Okay? Uh, chapter 3, verses 8 to 13. Uh, in the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Sholtal, and Joshua, the son of Jotadak, and the rest of their brothers, the priests and the Levites, and all who came with the into captivity to Jerusalem, began to work and appoint the Levites from twenty years and older to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Then Joshua, the sons of brothers stood united with Daniel and sons, the sons of the Judah and sons of Hanadab, with their sons and brothers the Levites, to oversee the workmen in the temple of God. 
how when the builders had laid the foundations of the temple of the Lord, the priests did in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, the symbols to praise the Lord according to all the directions of King David of Israel. They sang praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout, and they praised the Lord <coughs> the foundations of the house of the Lord was laid. And many of the priests and Levites, and heads of the fathers' households, the men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundations of his house was laid before their eyes, while many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of shouts of joy and the sound of weeping of the people. For the people shouted with loud shouts, and the sound was heard far away. Basically, what do they do in this section? They rejoice and praise the Lord because they've done what? They've done what? Laid the foundation. Laid the foundation of the devil. Exactly what they did. This is a great thing. They are being led by two men. Who are the two men they are led by? Zerubbabel, who was like the governor. He was actually a descendant of David. And Jeshua, sometimes called Joshua, who was the high priest. These two men take the leadership and they work together and they build the foundation of the house of God. And how do they feel? Happy and sad. They rejoice. Why would they be sad? They, some of the old timers, realize this doesn't look like it's going to be as awesome and magnificent as the old one. But overall, they're making progress. They are about to build the house of God. They've got the foundation. Like, why would it be so important to build the temple anyway? The same reason it was important to David and Solomon to have a place of God. And it was it was really it was where they worshipped, too. It was where they worshipped. But it was a place of God. It was really like what for God? This is house. Um, and so building the temple really shows that the people want what? They want God to live with them. Don't build his house. Well, they don't want him around. So, thankfully, they lay the foundation and they rejoice and things are going wonderfully. Comments and questions. Kind of going off what Joe said about Israel learning their lesson for a short time. This is one of the few instances that uh, Israel has, can be used as a positive example because one, this is one of the only times in their history where they actually give the glory to God. You see, one of their biggest mistakes is being prideful. Their pride was very extreme, especially you look in some of the minor prophets in Jeremiah and Isaiah and things like that. But this time they give the glory to God, and that's why things are going so smoothly for them right now. Good point. Verse 11, they don't say, Wow, weren't we great foundation my earth? They say, For he is good, and his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. That's a good point. That is when we prosper, is when we recognize the Lord is the source of our blessing. Amen. Anything else? Alright, check 4, verses 1 to 5. Now when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the, people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel 
and the heads of the father's households, and said to them, Let us build with you, for we, like you, seek your God. We have been sacrificing to him since the days of Ezar of Adam, king of Assyria, who brought us up here. But Zerubbabel and Joshua and the rest of the heads of the father's households of Israel said to them, You have nothing in common with us in the building. You have nothing in common with us in the building a house for God. For we are still will gather build to the Lord God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. And the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah to frighten them from building. Verse 5? Yes. And hired counselors against them frustrated the council all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Very good! No work attempted for God will proceed unchallenged. And from here to the end of Nehemiah, that's pretty much what we're going to see. But this challenge actually begins with these uh, enemies from that general region coming at Zerubbabel and asking to do what? Help. <laughs> Let's build with you. We want to help you. We want to cooperate. And uh, the leaders, Zerubbabel and Jeshua, said what to this offer to help? We have nothing in common. We do not want your help. What do you think about them saying that? Here are people wanting to help. And they say, what do I need to do with you? Accepting everyone and saying that everyone's wonderful, no matter what they do. 
Isn't that what tolerance means today? Um, uh, fortunately, our mathematics, teacher, mathematics teachers do not practice the principle of tolerance. If they did, it would be confusion. Two plus two is five for you. Grammar teachers generally don't do that either. You know? Uh, it, it, it doesn't work in pretty much anything except people work it in philosophy, religion, things like that. And that, well, you believe in one God, you believe in two, well, hundreds of make any, any number's fine. You think we ought to worship this way, you think we ought to worship that, it's okay. You know, we just get along, we just all love each other. But here, God's appointed leaders, they're acting with his approval, they say, we don't want your help. Now, it, it's kind of funny, here these guys want to help, and verse 3, you have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God, but we ourselves will work together to build the house of God. And when they're rejected, they're offered out to reject, and what do, what, do these, uh, what do these people wanting to help so much do? They try to frustrate the work. They try to inhibit the work. They hire counselors. They, they do all sorts of things to try to interfere. What does that tell you about what their motives were in the first place? <laughs> they wanted to give, probably wouldn't have been very helpful. I think we now see their true colors, and maybe see another reason why Zerubbabel and Jeshua decided not to accept their offer to help. Who knows what monkey wrenches they might have thrown in the building if they'd have been allowed to order to help. Comments and questions on that? I think it's uh, really interesting what you're pointing out. Uh, in verse 2, it talks about how they wanted to, and it, what seems like a genuine, they wanted to help. Their, your God is our God. We want to serve Him and everything. And like you were saying before, how we're pressed so much to tolerance and stuff like that. Well, in churches these days, we see so many people who, um, like I know I've been invited to mission trips from friends of mine at school that have, uh, but they, they go to like different churches and stuff like that. It's like, yeah, well, we're trying to proclaim the Word of God. Uh, claim Jesus Christ to all people and everything and when I say I'd rather not go, it, it almost seems like well what do you do an arrogant person or whatever like that. And so oftentimes we have so many people that are striving what seems to be striving for the same things when in reality it's not. It's funny how something so old and like this applies perfectly with what we're doing here. Yeah, good. good point. Other thoughts? Yeah. Uh, Think about how we all live here in America where everyone's opinions are tolerated. Nobody's really wrong, seeing what's wrong, and how that who does apply with our goals here in life. In judgment day, there are people who are wrong, people who are right, your opinion is good, but mad. You've got the book, you just need more text to study that. And we're not going to be very popular when we stand up for the truth of what God says, and we say this is wrong because God says it's wrong. That's not popular. Jesus wasn't very popular. Even though the prophets weren't very popular. Either we're pretty good company when we're not popular. But we're going to have to be willing to be thought of as bigger than narrow-minded intolerant and all the other things people say about folks who stand up for what's right and who say what's wrong is wrong. But we have no right to not declare what the Bible says about this. If God says something's wrong and we say it's right... It's a good lesson for us. It's a good passage to think about. The rest 
Ephesians chapter 4 is not, is sometimes not even understood properly. You know, we're, we, we built the foundation. We've got the offer to hell that ended up being an effort to hinder. And even to the point in verse 5 of hiring counselors to try to frustrate the work. Then verse 6, in the reign of Ahasuerus. Now what he does, this is kind of odd for us, we have a flash forward. Sort of a flashback when you're writing. All of you who've had literature know what a flashback is, right? Flashback, you know, a guy grieving or something. goes back in time and we pick up a story from the past. Well, here's a flash forward. We go forward in time, we pick up a couple of stories from the future. What Ezra is doing, what the book of Ezra is doing, is illustrating the kinds of enemy activities, the kind of the nature of the enemy, by pulling in a couple of examples of what was going to happen in the future. I think this way you can see the Jesuits Rubable really weren't done at all when they rejected the offer to help. Look at what these guys do in the future. So in verse 6 is what they did 50 years later in the reign of Ahasuerus. And in verse 7, in the days of Artaxerxes. What? Uh, probably um, maybe 80 years later. So, so he picks up, and, and from verse 7 to verse 23 is a long section telling us what happened in the days of Artaxerxes when these same kind of guys tried to interfere with the work that was being done in Jerusalem. Then in verse 24, we're going to go back to real time and pick up what's going on in the temple rebuilding process. So you got that idea? Verse 6 to verse 23 is to flash forward. Verse 6 is 1, verse 7 to 23 is the next one, telling about something that's going to happen in the future that kind of shows you what these enemies were like. See the idea of that? And in the days of Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes, Bishop, you can start eight. Oh, start eight. Okay, sorry. Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to King Artaxerxes as follows. Then wrote Rehum the commander and Shemshai the scribe and the rest of their colleagues, the judges and the lesser governors, the officials, the secretaries, then the men of Erech, Erech, the Babylonians, Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations which the great and honorable Osnapar deported and settled in the city of Samaria and in the rest of the region beyond the river. And now, this is the copy of the letter which they sent you. To King Artaxerxes, your servants, the men in the region beyond the river, and now let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you have come to us at Jerusalem. They are rebuilding the rebellious and evil city and are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now let it be known to the king that if the city is rebuilt and the walls are finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and it will damage the revenue of the kings. Now because we are in service of this palace, it is not fitting for us to see the king's dishonor. Therefore we have sent and informed the king, so that this search may be made 
in the record books of your fathers, and you will discover in your record books, and learn that the city, that that city is a rebellious city, and damaging to kings and provinces, and that they have incited revolt within it, within it in the past days. Therefore, that city was laid waste. We informed the king that if the city is rebuilt and the walls finished, as a result, you will have no possession in the province beyond the river. Does you love political propaganda? Here is the letter. This is written in Aramaic, by the way, from here down to 618. The section of Aramaic, not Hebrew. But uh, this is the, the text of the letter, actually, that these enemies write back to King Artaxerxes. Basically, warning the king about what? Yeah, the revolt. About the attitude of the Jews. He needs to look at his historical documents and he'll see that the Jews are people you can't trust. What were the Jews doing right here that they were trying to put a stop to? Rebuilding the city and the walls around the city. And these enemies didn't want the walls to be rebuilt around the city. They didn't want a strong Jerusalem. So they write and say, listen, okay, we really want to help you. We really care about you a lot. And we don't want you to be hurt. And if you let these guys rebuild the city, look at how rebellious and seditious and whatever they've been in the past. And so maybe you ought to look into the records and put a stop to this. That's basically what they're saying. How many questions about that? So is the idea what they what they're saying uh, that they were a rebellious city? Is that sort of like the conquering of uh, the promised land and that sort of thing? Oh, and maybe uh, later times there were times when they would rebel against Babylon or whoever they were halfway trying to serve. So I don't know what all they really had in mind to look at. Yeah. So this would have been legitimate information. Right? <clears throat> so far, I mean. Yeah, the Jews have been rebellious from time to time. He's going to find that out. Well, I was just kind of thinking, like, we need to be careful, like, in some situations that what we do now can affect us in the future. That's a good point. Yeah, that's a good point. I'll buy that. Yeah. So are the people who are writing this letter also under Persian rule? Yes. Yeah, everybody's under Persian rule. So they're just kind of telling the king, hey, we don't like these people, so they're taking them. Yeah, that's kind of what they were doing. Because after all, they really care about the king a lot. <laughs> okay? Well, let's find out what happens. 17 to 23. The king sent this reply to Raven, the commanding officer, Shimshai, the secretary, and the rest of their associates living in Samaria and elsewhere in the Trinity Greetings. The letter you sent us has been read and translated in my presence. I issued an order, and the search was made, and it was found that this city has a long history of revolt against kings and has been a place of rebellion and sedition. Jerusalem is a powerful king ruling over the whole of Trans-Euphrates, and taxes, tribute, and duty were paid to them. Now issue an order to these men to stop work, so that this city will not be rebuilt until I so order. Be careful not to neglect this matter. Why let this threat grow to the detriment of the royal interest? As soon as the copy of the letter of King Artaxerxes was read to Rehu and Shimshai, the secretary and their associates, they went immediately to the Jews in Jerusalem and compelled them by force to stop. Okay, here's the answer to the king. And what has he done? 
He's doing what? He's heard the letter. Yeah, he's heard the letter. And he did what did the letter said to do? Stop him first. He yeah, went through the records and found out the Jews are rebellious. And so he issues an edict, a decree to do what? Make them stop building. And uh, <clears throat> probably unnecessarily, he says, beware of being negligent in carrying out this matter. <laughs> I don't think he really had to say that. Uh, but uh, he says, we must stop it. Stop it until what? Until what? Until I should issue a decree for it to resume again. Oh, that was providential. Because the laws of the, of, the, of the Medes and the Persians, there was a special thing about the laws of the Medes and the Persians. You know what? What you couldn't do to the laws of the Medes and the Persians? You couldn't alter them. You could not revoke them or change them. Uh, you find that out in what book? Daniel. However, there was an escape clause in this decree. This decree was only to last until another decree would be issued. So this actually already has the provision that it's possible to alter this decree. I suspect that the Lord has his hand in back, and I read, I have this read mostly, not because we so need it for Ezra, but because this is the background for the book of Nehemiah. This is, this is very helpful. When we study Nehemiah, this is what leads right into that book. And uh, so, they had to stop work on the wall. They made them stop. Uh, stop work, or rather, yeah, stop work on the wall. So, yeah. I was wondering if uh, Cyrus had told them to build it, and he can't take his word back, and how can already first to change that? Well, what had Cyrus told them to build? Mostly, the temple. Now Isaiah would indicate also he had told them to rebuild uh, the, the city. Uh, so I don't know the answer to that, but this is a long time later. And, and more the emphasis of Cyrus is more than that. So uh, that's a good question. I was going to say, that isn't, isn't, it, isn't what the Jews do is... Uh, either Ezra and Nehemiah once brings back up when Darius is king the, ish, the original decree of Cyrus and that what they do the original decree to go back and rebuild the city that's earlier okay see this is the flash forward okay yeah this is from 80 years ahead of where we're really at in Ezra 4 yeah this is just illustrating similar actions of these enemies from the future to get a flavor of what kind of guys they are. Okay, anything else? So now we come back to Ezra time, chapter 4, verse 24, then work on the house of God in Jerusalem ceased, and it was stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So the efforts in Joshua and Zerubbabel's day to stop rebuilding the temple, they stopped. For about 15, 16 years, they stopped. Didn't rebuild. That's, where, that's back to where we are right here. They, they, they then have, have accomplished what task in the rebuilding of the temple so far? Foundation. Anything else on chapter 4? Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. 
When the project Hayat and Zechariah determined others, the project's testament to be used here in Judah and Jerusalem, in the name of the God of Israel, who is ever there. So Zerubbabel returned to Bethlehem, and Joshua the son of Zoyat rose up and began to build the house of God, which is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with Jesus. Yes. So, you have two prophets that stir the people up to start building on that temple again. Who were the two? Haggai. Haggai and Zechariah. You can read about those prophets' prophecies in their books. Haggai and Zechariah. But they get the people started back building again. Of course, that creates some question marks. Tatanai, the governor, and Shather Bozani, and some other guys in verse 3 want to know why they're building on this temple. And they are told, and Tatanai and Shather Bozani and some of those other guys send a letter to Darius, who's now the king of Persia, asking him if they were really supposed to be rebuilding the temple or not. And Darius finds the documents that Cyrus had issued. This is chapter 6 now. And finds out that they are supposed to be building the temple. And in fact, Tad and I, finding this out, verse 7 of chapter 6, leave this work on the house of God alone. And verse 8, moreover, I issue a decree concerning what you are to do for these elders of Judah in the rebuilding of this house of God. The full cost is to be paid to these people from the royal treasury out of the tax of the provinces beyond the river, and that without delay, and have them offer anything they need in terms of animals. Verse 9. Verse 10, that they may offer acceptable sacrifice to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. And I issue a decree that any man who violates this edict, a timber shall be drawn from his house and he shall be impaled on it. And his house shall be made a refuse heap on account of this. And so... Darius puts the full weight of the Persian treasury behind the finishing of the building of this house. That's amazing. Wonder how that happened. I give the Lord might have had in that, do you think? And uh, so they start rebuilding on the house again. Comments and questions through 612. So Darius becomes king after Cyrus before Artaxerxes? Yes. And before I ask you, one more question. Yes. Um, when they stopped building in verse 24 in chapter 4, yes. is that because of Artaxerxes' letter? No, no. That was because of chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, the interference okay. of the, the, the enemies at that time. Artaxerxes was much later, after the temple had already been rebuilt, all that. Okay, so the prophets come because they stopped from the local. Yes. Yes, chapter 4, verse 6 to 23, chronologically, is way in the future. That's the thing that's tough in chapter 4. You have to look carefully at that. He, he, he specifies very clear this is in this period, this is in this period, but we're not used to reading something where we're reading along, suddenly we jump forward for, you know, about 16 verses, and then we jump back and pick up the story again. So that, we have to really watch that. I, I remember years ago hearing a class from a good preacher where he taught on Ezra, where he taught that this was in the same time period, just totally ignored. <laughs> that it says it's not. <laughs> and But he argued that it was. But it's not, because the text says it's not. Uh, <laughs> 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 so no brainer to me. Uh, but 
But there are actually commentaries and things like that that will ignore that and say, no, it's really got to be the same time period as well. Uh, it just illustrates for the future time period, the attitude of the Genesis. Once you see that it's not, then as I said, chapter 4, verses 7 to 23, really paves the way for starting the MI. Yes? So would you, would, you wouldn't say that this would be prophetic then, would you, would you say that Ezra just... Ezra was written after all of this had happened. So he was just quite elderly. Ezra probably wasn't even around at this point. Ezra is writing something that includes these things before Ezra himself was here. We've not read about Ezra the person yet. So Ezra writes kind of history starting back before his day. Good question. So is there any... So who's the author? Ezra. Ezra's the author, but he's writing about things that happened before he was around. Right. So, so he's so, so he's sort of writing sort of like a prologue to him writing. Well, he's just writing the history of this, I'd say, and he's actually got some documents. He he obviously has done enough research to actually get the actual documents. And he was a priest, right? He was a priest. Yeah. Is he in the time of Darius? Is he in the time of Darius? He's later. Yeah. Ezra, Ezra, the person is late. He's in the time of Hasmerus. And uh, even even our Artaxerxes. So. Okay. Um, so chapter six, verses fourteen to eighteen. The elders of the Jews were successful in building through the prophesying of Haggai, the prophet of Zechariah, the son of Ido. And they finished building according to the command of the God of Israel and the decree of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The temple was completed on the third day of the month of Adar. It was the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. The sons of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles celebrated the joy dedication of, the, of this house of God with joy. They offered for the dedication of this temple of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, twelve male goats, corresponding to the number of tribes of Israel. Then they appointed the priests to their divisions, and the Levites in, in their orders for the service of God in Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. Okay, so what happens? The temple's completed? The temple's completed, yeah! They finished the rebuilding of the temple. Uh, this takes a period of about four years, but they do it, and then what do they do? They offer sacrifices. Sacri- offer sacrifice, kind of a dedication for the temple, and what's their attitude? How do they feel? Joy. This is wonderful. They've got God living with them again, you know, or at least they've got the place for Him to live. And uh, they want his presence. This is a the place to worship. And so uh, it's a very joyful time. It's a high point. This would have been about 516. Came back about 538, 536, and through there, build the foundation, stop, start again at about 520 and finish it at about 516. Comments? I have a question. All right, let's look at your time. I don't even know when we're supposed to stop again. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not exactly sure. 11, 10, 11, 15. 11, 15, okay. All right, very good. Anything else you want to say up to this point? 
Okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take a couple minutes and give you kind of an overview of where we're going, and then we'll stop. Um, this is kind of stage one. Now, in Ezra chapter 7, we start in a time period, actually, in the reign of Artaxerxes. Now, in between Ezra 6 and 7, historically, there's another book that fits. You know what book that is? Historically, chronologically, in the time period, what book fits between Ezra 6 and 7? Esther. Yeah. Esther was in the period of King what? Artaxerxes. Ahasuerus. We know Ahasuerus from a secular history by another name. What was his uh, non-Hebrew name? Xerxes. And so the story of Esther fits in between Ezra 6 and 7. And then Ezra 7 starts with the return of Ezra. We really have three stages of the return also, at least outlined in the Bible. That original return with Zerubbabel and Jeshua, who we read about in Ezra 1 and 2, then this return of Ezra in Ezra 7 through 10, and then the return of Nehemiah in the book of Nehemiah. So Ezra's return, starting chapter 7, we're about 458, and then by the time we get to Nehemiah, will be about 445. And we'll actually read that Ezra and Nehemiah ended up cooperating in some of the things that they did. So, the first return accomplished the rebuilding of the temple. This return of Ezra is going to have a rebuilding of the people spiritually. And the return under Nehemiah, what did he rebuild? The walls. The walls around Jerusalem the wall rebuilding project that had been stopped by that decree that's mentioned in Ezra chapter 4. Nehemiah got Artaxerxes to reverse his decree. And he was able to get the wall rebuilt. Do you remember what Nehemiah's relationship to Artaxerxes had been? He was the cupbearer, a very trusted advisor of King Artaxerxes. And thankfully, Artaxerxes had that provision that allowed him to issue another decree. All right. Yes, Scott. Hey, permission. Uh, chapter 4, verse 24, it's after the decree is made to stop everything. It says, then the work of the house of God in Jerusalem. 24, we're back to real time of Ezra 4. Okay. So we splash back to where we ought to be in Ezra 4, 24. They stop the work on the temple. You have to look very carefully when you're reading those things, time period and what's being referred to. Anything else? All right, you're a good class. Appreciate that a lot. And uh, we'll work on Ezra 7 through 10 tomorrow. One quick announcement. Yes. Uh, John wants to make sure everybody takes survivors back to their cabins. If you need a restroom break before pictures, now is the time to do it. All right. Very good. Thank you.